Hello and welcome to a special edition of Going Viral. I'm Mark Honigsbaum. And I'm Hannah Maudsley. We're the disease detectives investigating everything you need to know about the Spanish flu. Today we're going to shift from 1918 to the present day by bringing you a conversation that we recorded earlier this year with Jeremy Farrer, the director of the Wellcome Trust. Influenza is the one disease we know about which could cause a global catastrophe and it would spread around the world very quickly. We are essentially relying on interventions which we had in 1918 and we absolutely need to make sure that we have better social interventions, that we have better drugs and we have better vaccines against influenza because it it is at the top of the risk list and it will always remain so. Episode 8 Pandemics Past and Present with Jeremy Farrer. Now, after the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust is one of the biggest funders of biomedical research anywhere in the world. And in Britain, it's the single largest source of scientific funding after the government. The Wellcome also funds the medical humanities. And this year, they've put the Spanish flu pandemic at the top of their agenda by supporting arts projects and cultural initiatives inspired by the remembrance of the centenary. This is not only to highlight all of the great historical research into the Spanish flu, but also to reflect on the lessons of 1918 and its relevance for how we respond to other epidemics and pandemics that may be coming down the line, including, possibly, a new pandemic sparked by bird flu. In the interest of full disclosure, I should say the Wellcome Trust has supported this podcast. Flu has become part of common language. We all talk about flu being when you've got a bit of a runny nose and you are at home off sick for a day or two. I asked Jeremy to spell out why we should be so worried about influenza now. Truth is, real influenza is a really nasty disease. It knocks you out for days or weeks. You're lethargic, you're miserable, you can't do anything useful. We should never forget a few hundred thousand people every year die of influenza. And influenza is the one disease we know about which could cause a global catastrophe and it would spread around the world very quickly. I first met Jeremy Farrer in 2005 during the H5N1 bird flu outbreak in Vietnam. Jeremy was then working as a clinician and infectious disease researcher at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in Ho Chi Minh City. And I was a journalist with The Observer. Jeremy spent 17 years working in Vietnam. During that time, he found himself at the forefront of both the bird flu and the SARS outbreaks and forged close links with Chinese scientists in an effort to improve the exchange of information about other emerging pathogens. Since becoming director of the Wellcome Trust in 2013, he's put research into infectious diseases at the heart of the Wellcome Trust's agenda. He's also thought deeply about what it will take to deal with a future pandemic. And we started by asking Jeremy to take us back to the 2003 SARS epidemic, which was a watershed moment in his career. That was the moment when really I and the world woke up to the potential vulnerability of the world to mass epidemics and or or pandemics. And why that was so important in so many different levels. Firstly, it was a very nasty infection, which came from nowhere. It spread silently across southern China for many, many months before it became reported and it only actually became reported when another country identified it and spoke up about it. It got to the whole closed sense that China 
in particular in 2003 had around any pronouncements about public health or the freedom of the Chinese officials to talk about or share any information, a very closed society in a very sense that we must keep things hidden. So that infection bubbled away in southern China, as we now know. Then somebody went to Hong Kong and it spread around a lift in a particular hotel. And, and then, of course, many people in Hong Kong suffered. The burden of disease in China became very obvious. And then critically, given the connections from Hong Kong, which are all around the world, because it's such a hub of travel, it then spread very quickly and spread to Vietnam. And of course, that was then when Carlo Urbani, a very good friend of mine, made the very important observation that a whole pile of patients were coming in sick with a very severe respiratory infection. And the critical information that he noticed was that a lot of nurses and doctors were getting infected and patients close to those patients were getting also infected. What I find striking is it's often clinicians who were the first to notice something different or to raise the alarm about these viruses. And that's certainly true in the case of Carlo Urbani, isn't it? If you look back at every single epidemic since 1997 and the first H5N1 bird flu in Hong Kong, and it's been true of every single epidemic since, it's all been picked up by astute clinicians seeing the tip of the iceberg of very severe patients with disease. That was true of SARS, it was true of bird flu, it was true of Ebola, it was true of Zika. And I think we underestimate the importance of astute clinicians, critical care, and the tip of the iceberg severe end of the spectrum. So Carlo was a parasitologist working for WHO, and he was very well liked in Vietnam. He had three small children, and we were regularly in touch about WHO-type things. He was a very good friend and a very, very capable individual in many, many different ways, as, as well as being a brilliant clinician. And he was called in by the hospital, the Franco-Viet Hospital in Hanoi, and it was him that made the astute observation. It wasn't just about patients coming in, but unusually, doctors, nurses, and other patients and their families seem to be coming down with this sickness, and very quickly after that patient came in. And what he did, I think, was truly remarkable. He persuaded the authorities of that hospital and the Ministry of Health, in not always the easiest country to work in, to effectively close the hospital and essentially not allow anybody in or anybody out. And they were lucky because in doing so, they did include any of the people who were potentially sick. And in doing so, they prevented that infection spreading anywhere in the country beyond that single hospital. But in doing so, I think off the top of my head from memory, about 45 people in the hospital lost their lives, 50 people or so. And Carlo Urbani, a month or two later, when he actually thought he was clear on a flight to Thailand to present the data to the rest of the world, he succumbed to the very severe infection and subsequently died in a hospital in Bangkok a few months after the outbreak in early 2003. So it was an incredibly astute clinician identifying something was wrong with the right political and other contacts to make an intervention that worked and then just the remarkable sacrifice of saying, I'm going to close the hospital and take all the consequences of that. And that was a really, you know, it's now, what's that? That's 15 years later. And like many sort of turning points in your life, you can sort of imagine yourself there again yesterday because it had such a profound influence on me. I mean, not just on you. His death was a wake-up call for that whole public health community working in Southeast Asia. It's often described as the world's first 21st century epidemic. But it's also been seen as a sort of model of what a 1918-style influenza pandemic might look like in its early stages, because SARS was a respiratory infection. 
and it spread very efficiently within these closed hospital environments. If you could sort of talk us through the impact his death had and how that galvanised your world. So his death was obviously tragic and he left behind a young family and that had a profound personal impact but also a profound impact in just what you have to do in circumstances like that but yes SARS which came out of nowhere in the wet markets of southern China in in its start really was the first 21st century pandemic in a sense it was a respiratory infection which was relatively easily passed from one person to another caused severe disease and a lot of people died but it also demonstrated to the world that out of these huge urban centers where your human-animal interaction is very close and where in big urban centres you have the possibility to spread things in hospitals, in transport systems, in daily life. And then you add to that the ability to transmit that around the world because you're in a transport hub, which is Hong Kong, demonstrated that within days and weeks these can spread around the world. And Vietnam got very lucky because of the actions of Carlo Urbani, but Canada suffered hugely. China obviously suffered hugely. Singapore suffered hugely from this. And it was a sort of demonstration of just what the potential for this is when you have something new that causes an infection which can pass from one person to the other, kill a significant number of people with it, and for which you have no diagnostic, you don't know the cause of it, you don't have any drug that works, and you have no vaccine. And you have no social interventions that you've got any idea if they work. Washing hands, isolating people, all things that we could have done in the 19th century. And when you're in that situation, it is incredibly frightening. The only thing I can think is close to it is being a soldier in war when you don't know which of your patients are infected or your colleagues are infected or whether you're infected you don't want to go home at night for fear of passing it on to your family and when of course it's personal you know the people involved then it just sort of underlines that more so it was perhaps the only time in my career when I was truly frightened about what I was doing and why I was doing it and it makes you question your professionalism why you're there you know why am I a young British doctor in Vietnam working on these issues and what is remarkable is the resilience of systems and people and commitment and that resilience and professionalism is remarkable to behold when you're in it. In the initial stages of SARS a lot of people thought this was a long feared bird flu outbreak coming back but a few years later bird flu did start to spread and this was another I believe terrifying and frightening moment. Can you just explain the sort of social context and where you were working at that stage and and how you became aware that there was yet another virus now, not SARS, but something different circulating in Vietnam? Yeah, so SARS left that sort of indelible impression on all of us. And then it was just 12 months later, it was in Vietnamese New Year, Vietnamese Tet, And I was working in a government hospital in Ho Chi Minh City in the south of Vietnam. And I got a phone call late at night on the eve of Tet. So that's like New Year in Western societies, but it's more than New Year. Vietnamese Tet is like New Year and your mother's birthday and your wedding anniversary and Thanksgiving and id all rolled into one. Most people are on the move that weekend. They're on the move to go from urban places to their villages where they've come from. They will often travel in trains and buses and they will travel with chickens and ducks and other poultry as part of the celebration. So the social context of what's happening at that time, hospitals are empty, everybody's on annual leave at home with their families. And for some reason, I was still working at the hospital. And I got a phone call from somebody I'd worked with very, very closely, who is still working in the same hospital today, called Tranton Heen. And he phoned me to say that he and somebody from WHO had been to see a young child in the paediatric hospital about a kilometre away 
from where we were working. And the WHO person and he and had taken a history and they come to the conclusion this was not a return of SARS and that it was a chest infection that didn't need to worry about. But Hian, who was, I think, the most brilliant clinician I have ever worked with in my career, decided stupidly in some ways to stay on and take another history. And from that young girl, he took a history that a week or so before, she had had an argument with her brother about a duck that had died. They buried the duck. She was so angry and upset by this that she decided to dig the duck up and rebury it because it hadn't had the burial it deserved. And in doing so, she cuddled this young duck very closely in the reburial and a few days later got very sick. And at that moment, we, of course, had no idea whether this was the coming of the next horrible influenza pandemic, whether this was a coming back of SARS or whether this was something completely different. But Hian was sufficiently worried that phoned up to ask, is there something we can do tonight which would help us work out what's going on with this girl? Something's not right, is what he said. How soon after that... Did you start to raise the alarm and learn other things? This wasn't an isolated case. So he, he took a sample from the young girl, from the nose, put it in his rucksack and got on his motorbike and drove the one kilometre across to the hospital where we were working, where we did have the laboratory facilities. And we had thought in the preceding year, we had thought we need to know if SARS or bird flu comes to this country and to this city and to this hospital. And so we did have the capability in the lab to make a diagnosis and it came up as a new influenza. So we knew that night we were not dealing with SARS, but we knew we were dealing with a new flu. This was not a flu we'd ever seen before, and within 24 hours we knew it was somehow related to the bird flu epidemic of Hong Kong of 1997. And then over the course of the following days and weeks, and indeed months, we then started to see across the country, both in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City and in other parts, a series of patients with a very, very severe respiratory infection, mostly young people, mostly with connections with chickens and ducks, and many, many of them died. About 40 or 50% of these individuals died. They had a very high, very high mortality rate. If you caught it, the chances of dying were very high. About 50% of people who were infected died. But actually, it was extraordinarily difficult to catch. The connection with the chickens and the ducks had to be very intimate. It wasn't just small contact. And although we did have some cases, it was very rare that it went from person to person. So this was a poultry virus influenza which had jumped across and jumped across on a few episodes into humans but then did not go from one person to another. So once again you're facing this big unknown. You don't have a vaccine. The remarkable thing is how little you know when something like this happens. You don't know how many people are infected, you don't know how many chickens are infected, you don't know how possible it is to pass from one person to another. You do have some drugs but the truth is none of them are very good. You don't know which dose to use. You don't know whether to give it by mouth or into a vein intravenously. And you have no vaccine. There's always this sort of spectre, in a way, behind these modern outbreaks of bird flu and other respiratory diseases. The spectre being 1918. Could it happen again? How present was the idea that we could be seeing something unprecedented? It was my first, second and third thought. You know, 1918 is in everybody's mind, 40 million people died of influenza, far more than died in the First World War. And of course, you've got to remember that in 1918, there were only about two and a half billion people 
in the world. Today we're 7 billion and we can travel around the world in 24 hours. So the idea that an influenza flu virus could come across from animals, from chickens, ducks, almost any, many animals, pigs, and no human would have any immunity. No human would be protected naturally against this infection. That is what keeps you awake at night. And H5N1 had essentially never been reported in humans before, other than 1997 and 2004 in Vietnam. And so you have this spectre of a flu virus that you have pretty lousy drugs for, you have no vaccine against. In Southeast Asia, a massive collection of people and chicks and ducks all living happily together and the ability to transport that around the world within 12 hours to almost anywhere in the world by flight. So if you're not worried about that, what is there to worry about in the world? That seems pretty high on the risk register to me. And yet apocalypse didn't occur. This worldwide catastrophe is yet to happen despite all the concerns about bird flu. So in in that night and the few weeks that followed that, I have to admit to being petrified and not an experience I would ever want to go through again because of the uncertainty. You just don't know. You don't know where this epidemic is going. You're seeing a stream of patients coming in very sick and tragically many of them died. And even those that survived had very severe infections. In retrospect and weeks, months later, when you start to see that no person within the hospital got infected from those patients. There were very, very few family clusters. In other words, one person had passed it on to another within the household. That was very rare. And after a few months, you start to become much more sanguine about what's going to happen. And in fact, within six months of the first patient, I remember arguing that actually it's unlikely that this is going to become a major global pandemic because I think it would have happened by now, given the number of people infected and the number of chickens and ducks that were subsequently infected. But you've got to remember at the beginning of that epidemic, you have no knowledge of that. And the worst thing to do in an epidemic, in my view, is to underreact. I think the lessons, if we come through now to 2014, the world underreacted to Ebola And as a result, Ebola spread across three countries, four countries, and caused to those countries devastation in many, many ways. So I I think you have to take each epidemic seriously, and you're more in danger of underreacting than you are of overreacting. Yeah, I mean, I I fully take that point. I mean, people often accuse World Health Organization, for instance, of crying wolf, but better to be guilty of crying wolf than not alerting the world to a disaster that could kill many more than 40 million people. Since SARS, we, we had bird flu, then we had swine flu, then we had Ebola. It feels like these epidemics are happening at an increasing rate. There is no doubt they're increasing in frequency and they're increasing in scale. And I think the drivers for that are a changing environment. We're changing ecosystems. We're changing how humans and animals interact. And most of these emerging infections come out of an animal reservoir. That's happened with influenza. It happens with Ebola. It happens with yellow fever in Central and South America. And we're changing the ecosystems in the way that humans and animals interact. And then those humans are now living in massive urban centers, which might have millions of millions of people in them. And the social networks and the social anthropology of cities is very different to villages. People interact differently. People have more connections than they do. They talk to more people. They touch more people. They travel with more people. And then they're more connected to the country, the region, and the rest of the world. And inevitably, they can get on a train, a bus, or indeed a plane, and take whatever is wrong with them to some distant part of the world. So 
environment and ecosystem change, change of relationship between humans and animals, urbanization, and the great capacity to spread that around the world very quickly are together adding up with a world that is very, very vulnerable at the moment to an emerging infectious disease outbreak. And we have to also be honest that whilst science has made great progress, some areas of science have been completely left behind and we have neglected many of these infections because they haven't happened. We don't have good diagnostics, we don't have good drugs treatment and we don't have vaccines and we also don't understand the social context they're happening in in order to make interventions at the social science level. So the world is very vulnerable in terms of these emergencies. Hearing you talk about SARS and then bird flu, then Ebola, I'm reminded that when these outbreaks first happen, they garner a lot of media attention. And there's also a lot of hysteria. But within a matter of weeks, and the epidemic disappears, people completely forget about it, and this sort of cultural amnesia sets in. What should we be doing during these epidemics and then afterwards so that we're in a better position next time? So I think there were some turning points in all of that. I think SARS alerted the world, and in the six months that SARS took for the epidemic to finish, there was inevitably great interest. It was on the front page of every newspaper. Hollywood blockbuster films were made. It had great interest. In truth, within six months, it was completely forgotten about. And then bird flu came along, and initially it was very frightening, and it was it all coming back to haunters, and 1918, Spectre was raised again, and actually it didn't happen. And then 2009 happened, and I was in Mexico City in May of 2009 at the start of the epidemic. And at that moment, that looked really horrible. All of the hospitals in Mexico City were full of young people with very severe respiratory infections, and they were dying. And you're faced at that moment with a, do you raise the alarm, or do you hope that it doesn't happen? And I believe we were right, and I defend this, and the World Health Organization was right, to call it a pandemic, to say that we need to galvanise support and to push forward and make change happen. In retrospect, there's been a sort of slightly cynical response which said, oh, it was never going to happen anyway and you're crying wolf. I think Ebola was a reaction against that and the fact that the world, and we all bear this responsibility, the fact that the world did not respond quickly enough to Ebola, I think was in part at least a reaction to a sense that the world had overreacted to 2009 pandemic. And that demonstrates, because Ebola then spread across three countries in a way that was unnecessary, didn't have to happen, demonstrates what happens if you ignore or underestimate the power of infectious diseases to change society. And I think what we need to do now is do what we should have done with SARS but did not do, and what we should have done with bird flu and did not do, and that is to accept that the world is vulnerable, to accept that we don't have the interventions we need, drugs and vaccines and social interventions, and work doubly hard now to make sure that where we can, we close those vulnerabilities, and that we do develop drugs and vaccines to protect populations anywhere in the world who need them against the emerging infections we know about, and also the emerging infections that are potentially new and novel like SARS that we have not yet thought about. Technologically, we can do that now. We just have to commit the resources and the political will to make that happen. So, I mean, this is the initiative that you've labelled outsmarting epidemics. We can outsmart epidemics. Do you think you can? I mean, some people would say scientists have always had these dreams of using the power of science to defeat infectious disease. But one way of looking at the history of 20th, 21st century epidemics is that that sort of laudable desire must come with a massive dose of hubris because we're always being caught unawares. How can we outsmart epidemics in your view? 
Epidemics are inevitable. You're going to have re-emergence of infections, whether driven by ecosystem change or change in dynamics of populations or indeed by drug resistance. So epidemics will happen, but pandemics are not necessary. I believe we can intervene in that critical early phase to stop an epidemic becoming a more regional or global problem that affects nations or the world more generally. And I believe as long as we are smart enough and bold enough to put up with being accused of being the boy that cries wolf, but as long as we're bold enough to be aggressive in the early stages of an epidemic, yes, I do believe that science can provide the answers to how we can control these epidemics. The Wellcome Trust is funding memorial activity around the Spanish flu. Can you give us a a flavour of why the Wellcome Trust sees the memorialisation of the Spanish flu as important as well as the clinical side of influenza more generally? I've always believed that history is really important and that you can undoubtedly learn lessons from it. Nobody now alive would have direct personal recollection of the pandemic of 1918. And yet I think the public of today need to be made aware that that happened and also bring it into the current context that this is still an issue for today. We do have some drugs for influenza, we do have some vaccines, but could those vaccines and drugs be made available to everyone in the world that needed them as the pandemic spread? The answer is no. We are essentially relying on interventions which we had in 1918. Washing our hands, putting a mask on, and isolating patients from their communities. We would do that in the 21st century as we did in 1918, and in 1918, 40 million people died. And we absolutely need to make sure that we have better social interventions, that we have better drugs, and we have better vaccines against influenza. It is at the top of the risk list, and it will always remain so. Listening to Jeremy, I'm struck by how the spectre of 1918 continues to inform his approach to epidemics and pandemics today. The Spanish flu really is a prime example of what can happen when experts underestimate, as he puts it, the power of infectious diseases to change society. We saw an example of this with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014. That time, the epidemic was restricted to five countries. But as we record this podcast in 2018, there's a new epidemic of Ebola in the Congo, the second one this year. And from China, there are continuing reports of people being infected with the H7N9 bird flu virus. That's worrying. We should remember, of course, that all it would take for one of these pathogens to reach a major city in Europe or North America is for someone harboring the virus to get on an aeroplane and spread the virus to another country. And that's exactly what occurred during the SARS epidemic. So you have to hope that Jeremy is right when he says that we're getting better at anticipating these outbreaks and outsmarting infectious diseases. On the other hand, one of the lessons of history is that viruses are pretty good at outsmarting us too. And that's particularly true of influenza, the ultimate changeling. To my mind, the person who put this best was the French writer Albert Camus in his classic 1947 novel, The Plague. Everyone knows that pestilences have a way of reoccurring in the world, yet somehow we find it hard to believe in ones that crash down on our head from a blue sky. There have been as many plagues as wars in history, yet plagues and wars always take people by surprise. Perhaps it's time for us to take the example of 1918 a little more seriously and, as Camus says, believe a little bit more. 
Going Viral is presented by me, Mark Honigsbaum. And me, Hannah Maudsley. Please do subscribe to our series so you don't miss an episode. And we'd love you to rate us too. Get in touch with us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod. Our producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. And the series is supported by the Wellcome Trust.